There is a story that's been told about a man who had a great opportunity that he missed. Can anybody relate to that? A great opportunity that you missed. Well, as this story goes, uh, this guy's friend took him for a ride one day way out in the country. And they drove off a main road and they drove through a grove of trees to a large uninhabited expanse of land. A few horses were grazing and a couple of old shacks remained there. The friend, whose name was Walter, stopped the car, got out, and started to describe with great vividness the wonderful things he was going to build. He wanted his friend Arthur to buy some of the land surrounding his project and to get in on the ground floor of this. But Arthur thought to himself, as Walter was describing everything, he thought to himself, who in the world is going to drive 25 miles for this crazy project? The logistics of the venture were staggering. And so Walter explained to his friend Arthur, I can handle the main project myself, but it will take all my money. But the land bordering it, where we're now standing, will in just a couple of years be jammed with hotels and restaurants and convention halls to accommodate the people who will come to spend their entire vacation here at my park. He continued, I want you to have the first chance at this surrounding acreage because in the next five years, it will increase in value several hundred times. Well, what could I say? I knew he was wrong, Arthur, te- Arthur tells the story. I knew that he had let this dream get the best of his common sense. So I mumbled something about a tight money situation and I promised that I would look into the whole thing a little later on. Later on will be too late, Walter cautioned Arthur as they walked back to the car. You had better move on it right now. And so Art Linkletter turned down the opportunity to buy up all the land that surrounded what was to become Disneyland. His friend Walt Disney tried to talk him into it, but Art thought that he was crazy. A missed opportunity. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 today. Get your notes organized and pen ready. I want us to be challenged as a church today about this aspect of time and opportunity. Time and opportunity. Our Lord, as you know, in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 is teaching his disciples, specifically four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, as they have asked him questions about what it will be like when he returns. What will it be like in the end of the age when you return? And our Lord has gone into great detail explaining to them some of the signs of the end times. And we've been studying this for a number of weeks. At the end of chapter 24, in what we call the Olivet Discourse here, where our Lord is specifically giving insight about this time frame known as the tribulation period and what will lead into a time of a thousand year reign of Christ on earth called the millennium, uh, our Lord has kind of shifted at the end of chapter 24 and he begins to illustrate a main point that he's been trying to drive home. So he's been describing these signs of the times that we've looked at, but then he settles on this theme of the fact that No one will know the day or the hour. He then begins to tell some short stories. He says what it's going to be like 
But no one's going to know the day or the hour. When we move into chapter 25, our Lord is now going to share two main longer stories illustrating this exact theme. Now, these two stories are related. They're parables. When our Lord taught, he often shared stories that his audience could pick up on them right away. They understood exactly what our Lord was talking about. They were normal, common day kinds of things. And our Lord was a master at communicating by, by capturing the imagination of the listener through a short story to drive home a main point. As we move into chapter 25, these two stories, one of them most familiar to you, the other not so familiar, similar as to their point, but a little bit different, are being told to, to, to challenge the listener, do not waste time, do not miss the opportunities. Now I recognize that our Lord in this context of speaking about the last days is talking about disciples who will be alive in the seven year period called the tribulation period. They will be seeing signs of the times that the Lord's return is evident and eminent, but they will not know the day or the hour, and our Lord is warning them through these stories. Most of them will be Jews, by the way. There will be a great uh, worldwide sweeping conversion of many Jewish people during the tribulation period. And those who are saved and alive at the Lord's return will live on into this thousand-year period called the millennium. And our Lord is challenging them, first of all, you want to make sure you don't waste your time. Be ready for his return. Secondly, don't miss the opportunities. Now, time and opportunity are closely related, aren't they? Opportunities that we have are often generated by windows of time. And so these two parables are going to illustrate similar concepts. The first one is the picture of a wedding party that is waiting for the groom to arrive. Now let's read our text. It's Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. The first story is, and this is a parable on wasted time. And by the way, let me say something else. I recognize that the context of the passage is talking about a future time when our Lord will return in his second coming. But we've talked about the fact that Jesus Christ is the, is the groom of his bride, the church. And that the Bible clearly indicates that he is coming for his bride, the church, before the tribulation period, a time when he will focus most specifically on Israel once again. So if these passages apply to the second coming of Christ, how much more do they apply to us as a waiting church for its groom? Time and opportunity. Okay, keep that in mind, as none of us know how long we have to live or when the Lord might return for his church. Let's read the text, Matthew 25, beginning with verse 1. Notice that he begins by saying, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like... Okay, so he's illustrating, and he's talking about my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, will be like this. It, will be, it is illustrated with this story. It will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. 
Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us or for you and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you, do, you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's stop right there. That's our first story. The story is focusing on wasted time or not wasting time. One of the problems that we have in interpreting parables is we, we struggle with the symbolism that's embedded in the story itself. Now here our Lord is using the picture of a group of young maidens who are evidently accompanying a bride. They're like bridesmaids who are waiting for the groom to come. But it's interesting, isn't it? The bride isn't even mentioned in the story. So here's one of the things that we'll do with parables. Oh, the bride isn't mentioned in the story, so the bride must be the church, and the church is already gone. But the text doesn't say that, and we don't know that for sure. You have to be careful. And another thing they'll say, okay, so there were, there were ten virgins, ten young maidens. You translate the word virgins to mean pure young women who were part of the, the wedding party. There were ten of them. Now, why were there ten? And we'll come up with some reason why there were ten. But five were foolish and five were wise. Well, what does that mean? And then the groom is coming. He's delayed. And, and, he, and then there, he comes at midnight and there's a midnight cry. What does that mean, that midnight cry? We could write a song about that maybe or something. And, and so we have a tendency to want to read into the parable and break it down and and, and, and find symbolism in all these things. But it's a very tricky business because it doesn't say it in the text. Sometimes as you ponder it, it will become clear to you. Say, you know what? The groom in that story, that must represent the Lord who's coming back. And the ten virgins, that's his people who are waiting some will be prepared, some are not prepared. You know, you got to just be careful about straining meaning into the passage. We're going to see that our Lord really gives us the punch to it in verse 13. The whole point is, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You, he's illustrating the point that you had better be alert because there's a limited window of time before the Lord comes. Well, let's look to our notes and our outline here. Our parable on wasted time is helpful for us to understand, first of all, letter A, the, a cultural explanation. It demands a cultural explanation because we're not very familiar with Middle Eastern wedding practices, and the story is told in the context of a wedding party. Now, a reminder again, as Matthew recorded this, as our Lord would have taught it, the listening audience, the disciples specifically, and anyone else who would have been uh, in that area listening would have understand and been able to picture immediately exactly what was happening. For us, it's a little bit different. What's the deal with the oil lamps? And what's the deal with midnight when the groom shows up? What's going on? Let's just review quickly uh, some cultural ramifications and, and understand a little insight, culturally speaking, about a wedding. First of all, you need to know that weddings in this time would have been planned or arranged by the parents. It's not necessarily a bad idea. All right? So parents would have arranged the wedding. Number two, 
you would need to know that there was an engagement period of many, many months. Many months, okay? So arranged marriages did not immediately have a wedding ceremony. So the groom would have gone to the father and he would have arranged and the two families, the groom's family and the bride's family would have actually negotiated at some level and the groom would come bearing gifts. That's not a bad idea either. And uh, he would come bearing gifts and they would have set up the fact that, okay, we're going to we're going to allow you to marry our daughter and there would be a betrothal. We're most familiar of this with Mary and Joseph and their story that is just a few weeks away for us here in our Christmas season. And this betrothal period or this engagement period needed to go on for enough months to document or to prove the purity of the bride. Uh, that the, the man and the woman hadn't come together uh, before they were married. And so this was a, 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 a highly significant arrangement. And, uh, and then many months would go by. And then number three, on the day of the wedding, the groom would go to the bride's house to claim his bride from her, from his, from her parents. And so they knew when the day was coming, all right, and they knew they were getting ready for it. And they knew that it would be a great celebration but in this story, our Lord is illustrating the fact that the day has come, but they don't know when the bride is going, to, when the groom is going to come for the bride. And so, what we have illustrated in the story is the groom is coming. Number four, notice after the marriage ceremony, which was usually at the bride's house, the groom would then take his bride home, which often involved a nighttime procession through the streets. Often, okay, it was a big day. The groom was coming, this was going to be celebrated, and there was going to be a nighttime procession by the time the ceremony was over, and the groom took his bride home to their house for that night. Number five then, there would then be a banquet, a banquet that would last as long as seven days, starting the next morning. So that helps us right away understand our story. Here you've got a bride, she's not even mentioned in the story, she's she has attendants, these maidens. And for the sake of the story, Jesus says five of them have their oil lamps with some oil, but no extra oil. The other five have oil lamps, but they've brought reserves of oil. And they are waiting together. Now notice that what the first thing we see in the story is that we have anticipation with and without preparation. There's anticipation with and without preparation. Let's look at the text here. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed. Okay, so what you have is all ten of them are in anticipation of the groom's return. But five of them did nothing to prepare in the time frame of waiting, but five of them did take advantage of the time and were prepared. So you have anticipation with and without preparation. Now notice that there's going to be a cost to the letter C, to the careless procrastination. There's careless procrastination on the five without the oil. Okay, so here's the scene. As the bridegroom was delayed, verse 5, they all became drowsy and slept. Okay, so we can kind of relate to this even in our culture. There's been a lot of hubbub. 
They're getting ready for the ceremony. There's a lot going on. All these girlfriends are together. All the bridesmaids are together. And there's just a hustle and a bustle of preparation. And we, we can see from just the review, culturally speaking, they have their lamps because when the, when the day of the ceremony is over, it's going to go into the evening. They probably have some kind of a stick that they put their lamp on a stick and they walk down the street and hold up their lamps. And so they're anticipating this wonderful time when the ceremony takes place. The groom comes for his bride. They're all swooning and they all accompany their friend, the bride, down the street with her groom as he takes her home for the very first time and they leave them there at the threshold of the house and then return and they provided light for that and so there they are but in the story Jesus changes it a little bit and he says oh but the groom doesn't show up now you got to be careful again with parables because you don't want to say well that would never happen it says he comes at midnight there's no way the groom would it's He's making up a story and he's exaggerating the story to illustrate his point. The point is that they were supposed to be ready. They had so much time to get ready. But then the groom was delayed to the degree that he doesn't come until midnight. Don't say, oh, that would never happen. It does in this story to make the point. The groom finally shows up. Somebody sees the groom coming and shouts out at midnight, the groom is here, that the girls are exhausted. That's what's similar to weddings nowadays, right? By the time the ceremony comes, everybody's so exhausted they can hardly enjoy it. They've worked so hard for that 21 minutes or so of the ceremony. And so there they are, and they've gone to sleep. And I don't think it's symbolic of anything other than they missed the opportunity. They wasted their time. So the groom shows up. They knew he was coming. They weren't ready. And the careless procrastination leads to a hubbub of activity as notice what happens in 5 through 10. At midnight there was a cry, verse 6. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Hey, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, you go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in to him to the marriage feast. I really appreciate the insight of a Bible commentary written by William Hendrickson called the New Testament Commentary Series. William Hendrickson, on this point, I mean, just think about the moment. All these girls are waiting there. They have their lamps. The shout goes out that the groom is coming and they realize they're not going to have enough oil in their lamp to get through the ceremony and to be able to be a part of the parade to go home and to start the banquet. And so they immediately say, let me borrow your oil. Let me share with me. William Hendrickson on this point, I thought it was so insightful, says this. Preparedness is not transferable. Preparedness is not transferable. You've got to get ready yourself. Someone else cannot get ready for the Lord's return for you. You have time. You have time and you have the warning, our Lord is saying, and He's coming. You know He's coming. That's what we've been talking about the whole time, is the warnings are there that He's coming. You just don't know when, and now you've been asleep and you haven't been prepared, and here He is. Notice that this leads to helpless frustration. 
helpless frustration. So the bridegroom came, verse 10, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Now you think about this moment. This is kind of a moment that, spiritually speaking, we've experienced in Scripture time and again. We've illustrated it with the ark, for example. The door of the ark was open and the flood rains were coming. And all of the people who disregarded the warnings, finally, we can imagine them pounding on the sides of the ark as the floodwaters rise. But what? The door has closed. Time is up. You've wasted your time. There's no more time. Now, I want to speak especially to maybe young people here. And your mom and dad have been telling you to pay attention to Christ. And your mom and dad, your granddad or your grandmom is telling you, you better believe the Bible, it's true. And you just don't think so. And you think, if, i got plenty of time. You don't know if you have time. And listen, preparation is not transferable. The other illustration that William Henderson pointed out here, a point that he made under helpless frustration, is that what we see illustrated by the closed door is that there are no second chances. Here they come to the banquet hall, the door is closed, and can you imagine the moment? Can you imagine the moment to their shock that the groom shouts through the door, go away, I don't even know who you are. There's a day coming, and you only have so much time to prepare for it, that our Lord, the groom, is going to come... And you're either ready or you're not ready, and no one can transfer that readiness. It's your responsibility. And then the door is closed. And can you imagine the day when you have squandered the warnings of your parents, the warnings of your pastor, the warnings of your teacher and your grandparents, because you think you know so much, and God doesn't matter, and Jesus Christ doesn't matter, and it's, there's more than one way, and you're going to figure it out, or you're going to wait. You've got plenty of time to party and to live for yourself. After all, you're only 20 years old or whatever, and you got time, and all of a sudden the door is closed, you're not prepared, and you hear the voice of the Master, King Jesus, through the door. And says, says, go away, I don't even know who you are. Can you imagine that having to come into your ears? Your time is up. And the Lord says, go away, I don't even know who you are. You're not one of mine, you're not part of my party. Go party in hell. What a horrible, horrible moment. You need to stop thinking you have plenty of time. It's the whole point of the passage. The warning signs are there. He's coming. Don't miss it. Well, there's the first parable. The lesson being, being ready for the coming of the Lord means more than being alert. It demands spiritual preparation. It demands spiritual preparation. Listen to me. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation for a reason. Today is the day of salvation for a reason. It's because you don't know how many days are written in your book before ever one of them came to be. And I want to tell you, they make caskets for 19-year-olds. And they make caskets for 27-year-olds. And they make caskets for 13-year-olds. Whatever age you are, they have the perfect fit, I assure you. I'm partly in that business as a pastor. Do not think that you have more time. You don't know. You need to go to the cross, man. You need to go to Christ because he substituted in. It's the greatest thing you could ever understand. That your sin was put on Christ and his righteousness is available to you. And by grace through faith, 
You can tell God and accept from God His free gift of salvation in Christ. You don't have to start ironing your shirts even. You don't have to do anything. You just got to bow your head and your heart before the Lord and then let Him change you. And at that time, you, you will want to change. But come to Christ today. Today's the day to be at the cross. Today's the day to make sure you have oil in your lamp. That's the first story. Parable on wasted time. You only have so much time. And he drives it home in verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The second story is more familiar. It's longer. And uh, follow along as I read it. You'll recognize it as we read. For it, now notice he says, for it will be like a man. Notice up in 25 verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. He's illustrating what his kingdom demonstrates. In verse 14 when he says, for it will be like, what's he talking about? The kingdom of heaven. It's another parable illustrating what the kingdom of heaven will be like. You could even put that in there. For the kingdom of heaven will be like, here's the story, you'll recognize this one. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and he entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and he dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, you can hear it in his voice, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you had to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and you gather where, I, where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what, what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Can our Lord tell stories or what? I mean, with just a few words, with just the right twist to it, with just the right nuance, he gives just enough information to set the imagination on fire so that the listener understands exactly what's going on. Where our first story was about the brevity of time and the uncertainty of time, a parable on wasted time, this parable illustrates 
wasted opportunity. I know that they're related. Opportunities only come within a window of time. The first thing we see in the story is that we're dealing with a very valuable commodity. We're dealing with a very, a most valuable commodity. Now let's take just a minute and let's understand what we're dealing with. And again, a little bit of cultural insight. What is a talent? Because we're really not talking about, hey, that guy can play the piano really well. He's talented. That guy can shoot nine out of ten baskets in the hoop and from the free throw line. He's got a real talent. That's really not what we're talking about here. And I have benefited immensely from some notes from a professor at Dallas Seminary uh, named Thomas Constable. Let's just let him share with us some insight. Originally, a talent was a measure of weight between 58 and 80 pounds. So when you read, read the word talent in Matthew 25, the reader or the listener in in the cultural context would have understood a weight or possibly a coin, but it was a way of measuring silver. So a talent was between 58 and 80 pounds. Many Bible students use 75 pounds as an average working amount. Later, a talent was a coin, an actual coin then that was called a talent. And it was worth about 6,000 denarii. A denarii was a small coin that was representative of of the average person's one-day wage. This would make the talent coin worth the equivalent of about 16 and a half years' wages for a working man or foot soldier. Five talents, then, might amount to considerably more than a lifetime of earnings. So, when it moved from a weight to a coin, the talent coin represented upwards of 6,000 denarii, which represented 16 and a half years of a common working man's wage. And this guy is given five of them. And again, we're tempted in the story to say, come on, that could never happen. That's the whole point of the story. Our Lord is using disparity and between the numbers here. And he's, he's exaggerating. We might, we, if we were telling the story, we might say, gabillion dollars. The first guy is given five talents. We notice that they're dealing with a most valuable commodity. The first guy, servant, is entrusted with five talents. The second, two talents. The third, one talent. Let's continue. Let's let our eyes go to the box here and continue to listen to Dr. Constable as to what the talent is, what does it represent in this parable? Dr. Constable writes, probably we should understand the talents to represent all the working capital that God entrusts to his disciples. To limit the significance of talents to either spiritual gifts, natural abilities, the gospel, opportunities for service, money, or whatever, limits the scope of what Jesus probably intended. All of these things constitute what God has given his servants to use for his glory. I thought that was a good definition of talents. I think that First and foremost, talent represents the gospel and the message of the gospel. But I think that it's applicable to say that God has provided us with so much that is to be used for his glory. In the story, it's represented as money kind of wealth. Now let's continue with the story and break it down. We see that 
there's a man going on a journey and he has evidently a lot of wealth because when he calls his servants, he entrusts them to his property and they're dealing, as we've realized now, with a most valuable commodity. Letter B, notice that there's a clearly defined responsibility. He's giving them each specific amounts of money and it's embedded in the passage that they know they're supposed to do something with it, that they are now the stewards of what is owned by the master. It is given directly to them. There's no uncertainty about it. A clearly defined responsibility, verses 14 and 15. He's given them exactly what he wants them to have. Letter C, notice there's an, an emphasis in the passage on personal ability. There's an emphasis on personal ability. So he didn't give them all the same amount. He gave to the one guy five because he thought that guy could handle five. He gives another servant two because he knows he can handle two. And he gives another one because, I don't know, maybe he's not sure he can even handle one. But the master knows exactly who he's dealing with. And accordingly, he grants them responsibility of stewardship oversight for his talents. Letter D, there's an expected level of productivity that's innate to the passage, isn't there? He who had received the five talents, verse 16, he went at once and he traded with them and he made five talents more. I mean, that happens each time until you get to the one talent, the guy goes and buries it, which wasn't uncommon in that day to bury treasure, to protect it. But clearly the stewards of the master's talents understood that they had an expected level of productivity. The master expects me to do something with his talents. Letter E, notice that when we encounter the guy with the one talent, there seems to be this obvious level of insecurity. He who received, verse 18, the one talent went and dug it in the ground and he hid his master's money. It's like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm just going to take care of it. Hide it. Letter F, we see right away in verse 19 then what is immediately seen at the beginning of the story. The master is going away on a long journey implies that he will be back. Verse 19, we have an unknown day of accountability and it finally arrives. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them. He settled accounts with them. He knew, they knew there was an expectation on the master's produce. And so now you have this day of accountability. Clearly in the passage, it's, it's embedded in the passage that they did not know when this would happen. It was a long journey. Now the day is here. Illustrating a little bit like the groom in the story above. The groom was coming. We don't know exactly when. And he doesn't come until midnight. He was gone a long time. He was out fishing with his buddies or something. One last time. And now here comes the master after this long journey. Notice that as soon as he returns, verses 20 through 23, there is a time of commendation and increased capacity. They are granted an increased capacity for their successes, the one with the five and the two. And the one who had received the five talents came forward, verse 20, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here... Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. 
I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. So he is commended, and not only that, he is given even a greater ability to produce more. He's given even increased responsibility. The same thing happens with the guy with two. And he also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This commendation and then increased capacity for even greater service results from it. Imagine that when the master comes. He looks and he says, well done. Well done. The idea of well done means wonderful or excellent. We see, though, in the story, the tragedy of wasted opportunity, which is getting to the point of the story. The wasted opportunity, verses 24 to 28. Here's our guy. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. You can reap where you don't even sow, and you can gather where you've scattered no seed. So I was afraid. There's the insecurity that we thought was the problem. But evidently, the master sees through all of that. The guy says, I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master said, you wicked and you slothful servant. Can you imagine that? He's been watching, perhaps, as the other servants are commended and given greater capacity for service. And then he comes up and he pulls out his talent and he says, I have it, I buried it, I polished it, I took care of it. But you didn't produce. You missed the opportunity. And he says, well, I really didn't know what to do. No, you knew what to do. You are a wicked and slothful or lazy servant. I have noticed that lazy people are excellent at making excuses. Have you noticed that? Lazy people, wasting slothful people, always know how to come up with excuses. Proverbs talks about this when, when exaggerating. There's a lion in the street. What do you mean there's a lion in the street? Well, he's coming up with something they had to say. I couldn't do it, man. Dog ate my homework. No, you just didn't do your homework. And the master sees through it all and he recognizes that the guy that he gave the one talent had a different agenda than the master had. They completely understood the master's agenda. And the master's agenda was to take the capital with which I've blessed you and generate productivity. And you haven't done it. You have wasted your opportunity. You have identified yourself as a wicked and slothful servant. Then there's a warning about eternity that is frightening. A warning about eternity. So take the talent, he says, from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more given. More will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then he says, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I would suggest to you that there is no other way to understand what the Master says. Is that I am condemning you to a Christless eternity. Because you are not one of mine. That is equatable to the groom in the story above when the door is closed and the ones who are out looking for oil because they wasted their time come and knock at the door and the groom shouts through the knot hole, Go away, I don't even know who you are. And if that's 
not representative of the most horrible thing that a person could experience, what will it be to be cast as a worthless servant into outer darkness where there is nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth? I want to tell you something. There are no cool people in hell. There are no cool people in hell. There are only people who gnash their teeth and wail. The guy missed his opportunity. Now I recognize that there is a direct application for the time of the tribulation going into the millennium. And I think that part of the story here illustrates for us that, that those particularly Jewish people who will be converted during the tribulation period through the witness of even part of the 144,000 evangelists, and they will, they will be productive with the gospel. And when the master comes, some of them um, will lose their lives even over it, but others will be commended and they will move right into the millennium. And I take it that they will be given greater responsibility. I think there's a reflection in the passage of a... Of a of an increased blessing and responsibility in the kingdom of Christ, his literal millennial kingdom, as well as potentially the eternal state, that there will be increased blessing and increased responsibility and duty granted by the master as he looks at his faithful servants who have, have done well. The others stand in complete contrast, totally, totally, separated and detached from the master's agenda. They couldn't care less. Just go bury it in the ground. When he shows up, I'll go dig it up and I'll give it to him. And he wasted the opportunity that he had. So the lesson, the lesson is being ready for the coming of the Lord means living with a commitment to productivity. Being ready for the coming of the Lord means living with a commitment to productivity for God's kingdom, using all of the working capital that God has entrusted to each of his servants. Let's continue to read in conclusion. In the Olivet Discourse, it would seem that the direct application of this teaching is to those disciples who will be alive during the final years of the tribulation before the second coming of Christ. However, there is also reason to think that the Master's long journey can be represented by that time frame between Christ's first ascension and advent to His second advent. Therefore, it is imperative that we ask ourselves, each of us ask ourselves these questions. Number one, do I live my life in anticipation of Christ's return, yet find myself guilty of procrastination concerning something that I know is God's will for my life? If I do that, why? Am I procrastinating about things that I know God wants me to do? Why? I just want to enjoy the world a little bit longer. I think that I have time. I'm going to grow a little bit older and then I'll have time to do those things. What is it that I'm putting off that has been generated by the gospel in my life? What is it that the transformation of life has brought to me? And the sum total of the capital assets that God has granted me through all of the spiritual blessings in Christ, as well as material blessings that come from his good hand. And I am procrastinating about what God wants. I know the groom is coming. I know the master will return. I only have so much time and opportunity. What's going on with me that I'm such a willing procrastinator? Only you can answer that question. Number two, am I living with a sense of awareness as to the working capital with which my master, Jesus Christ, has entrusted me? Am I motivated to show a profit for my master at his return? 
Clearly, it's undeniable in the story that the master left with an expectation of productivity from his servants. How is it that God wants us to produce through the gospel and all other capital assets? Thirdly, am I living with a longing to hear my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant? This is not the point of my salvation. Our salvation is sealed in Christ. And we're positioned in the heavenlies in Christ through the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, through the justifying, redemptive power of the blood of Christ who's cleansed me from all unrighteousness. I have a security of knowing that I belong to the Master. But it is possible. It is possible to waste the opportunities that God has given us. And I don't know what this will look like exactly. At the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, there will be an, an acknowledgement of our productivity. Do you live for the moment of hearing the Master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I referenced William Hendrickson a little bit ago, the commentator that I really like on the New Testament commentary series. He said, um, We all recognize that lying, stealing, immorality, and murder, that these are sinful and despicable to God, but so is inactivity and omitting good deeds. I thought that was interesting. We are not driven for our salvation by good works, but because of the Master's work in my life, I naturally do good works because I'm a steward of all that my Master owns and all that He's entrusted. If the disciples at the end of the tribulation period need to live with a sense of duty concerning time and opportunity, how much more Christ's church today? That's us. Let's stand and close in prayer, please. And so, Father, we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to clarify and, and just crystallize in our own thinking these, the work of grace that you're doing in our lives and, and how you have blessed us in so many ways. The greatest of all is the Lord Jesus Christ, his substitutionary death, the clarity with which we have the gospel in our hands. And you've been on a long journey, and we believe you're coming back, but we don't know the day or the hour. Would you help us to use today to be ready for your return, that the door not be closed on us, that we not end up in a place of gnashing of teeth and wailing and darkness. That you would find your church joyfully, lovingly activated by this commodity of the gospel that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, would you take your Holy Spirit through the word that has been taught, through the mouth of our Lord Jesus, through the pen of Matthew, and this week allow us to ponder it and drive it home that we would have an understanding of how to live godly and upright lives today in this present world as we await your appearing. In Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.